Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In this episode, Ella Manuel goes back to exploits. As a young girl, she often visited these lovely islands where her father grew up. Many years later, she returned, sharing a boat ride with Gail and Jerry Squires, who had made a seasonal home there. It was here that Jerry began to develop his now-famous artistic vision of Newfoundland landscape and spiritual heritage. In this story, Ella also tells of three old brothers who once lived on Export. Out in Notre Dame Bay, about an hour's ride by motorboat from Little Burnt Bay on the mainland, is the island of Exploits, where my ancestors settled over 200 years ago and where some of them lived until it was abandoned. As a child, I thought the island paradise, full of friends and relations, some of whom lived in a big house with bay windows and carpets and curtains and furniture such as I'd never seen before, and I thought Buckingham Palace must look like this. And memories of sitting on the beach and sucking lobster claws we swiped from Great Uncle's lobster store, of jam and cream and homemade bread that my first, second, and third cousins fed me. Exploits is properly two islands separated by a narrow gut. Empty houses face this gut, protected from the ocean winds by the high hills encircling them. The once beautiful gardens have now gone to nettles, fences blown down, wharves rotted. You'd think it was a cheerless place. But we found that far from being so. It was sheer beauty and solitude, and for me, a curious dialogue with the past. You see, the four cemeteries here are full of the graves of Butts, Wells, Siviers, Lilies, and Manuals, all of them intermarried until you're never quite sure who your cousins are. The headstones yield tragic stories, such as that of Great Uncle Tommy and Great Aunt Priscilla, who lost six little children within two months. And history, too, for here in one cemetery is buried John Payton, with whom for a few years lived as a servant Shauna Ditty, the last Beothic woman. Some of the houses are new and well-built, some are old and some are veritable mansions. One is a rambling English-style house, painted red, set among shade trees with a rolling lawn around. My cousin's house, where I stayed, is cuddled in a rocky cleft, fifty feet from the water and the stage head with its dories. A stream runs down from the hillside into a gully and straight under her house into a huge well which you reach by opening a door off the kitchen. And the delicious taste of that water. When it rains you can lie in bed and hear the stream run under the kitchen with an unworldly gurgle. The main road is grass-grown and it's like walking on a carpet, one of the few places where you can walk barefoot for miles without stepping on broken glass. It's a magic place. It reminds me of what Freya Stark said about deserts. Here one can look on our universe from a detachment of loneliness, weigh our values at leisure, and judge them anew in the presence of the almost eternal. One man whose family have been there as long as mine does not think exploits cheerless. He knows and loves every rock, every tree, and more about the history of the place than almost anyone else. He stayed as week by week more and more families left. 
The post office was removed, as were the small general store, the lighthouse keepers, and the pilot station, from which men went out to guide cargo boats through the intricacies of the hundreds of islands in the Bay of Exploits. But Richard stayed, and he was there when we returned in summer for one last look at exploits and the shell of the once grand home of my great-uncle Josiah Manuel. Richard always said people would return. Jerry Squires was one, having spent childhood days when his parents were Salvation Army officers here. Lately, he and Gail and their two little girls came by and were enchanted, so they moved into an abandoned house and set up housekeeping. They found beautiful wooded hills through which you can walk all day in perfect quiet. They found grassy coves with lovely clean beaches, wild sweet berries, flowers in great pastures, and fish swimming around abandoned wharves. On the northern side of these islands are gaunt cliffs where the sea beats in straight from Greenland and creates such excitement that you couldn't possibly miss TV or newspapers. They found that though they spent half the day cleaning lamps, fetching water, chopping wood, and preparing food, it was worth it, for outside the weather was doing exciting things in a dazzling procession of days. Eventually, Gail and Jerry found a house to buy with a view over the bay, circled by little islands that turn a heavenly violet blue in the sunlight. They borrowed or bought the absolute necessities from friends who'd left furniture behind. The longer they stayed, the more sure were they that they'd done the right thing, moving from Toronto, to which they dashed off every once in a while to earn enough for another six months of paradise and painting. Now, with a few more congenial people, they could buy a boat to link them with the mainland for necessities and mail, and in case of emergency. They can live here on next to nothing. Firewood outside the door, land to grow vegetables, good grazing for sheep and cattle, and wild fruit for the picking. A line from near the kitchen window will produce a fish almost any time. Even in the winter, with supplies in the earth cellar and plenty of wood, it's exciting. Storms, calms, and the challenge of isolation. So they plan to spend the winter there and foresee no great problems. The worst they've encountered so far is that the men smoke their way through the tobacco supply. After ten days of smoking leaves and tea, they put out in their dory and rowed to the mainland. Five hours there and five back, which is no more than my grandfather did many times. I am reminded of three old brothers who lived here years ago in a little frame house which had sheltered four generations. They had sonorous biblical names, Aaron, Luke, and Jonathan. Now Aaron was short and plump with a bushy moustache, and a wicked grin that popped out at me when he asked, I suppose you haven't got any bad books, would you? I fair loves bad books. His pocket always bulged with something to read, and he could be often seen furtively pulling it out and sticking his nose into it. I never did discover what the books were about or what constituted in Aaron's mind a bad book, but I'm sure his hair would have curled even more than naturally if I'd loaned him any of my very bad modern novels. Luke was of middle height and very slim. He had the face of an El Greco angel and was quiet and gentle. Jonathan was well over six feet, broad as a house, and with snowy white hair falling over a handsome florid face. He loved cribbage even more than Aaron loved bad books. Jonathan's wife, Alice, was a tiny bent-over woman who bustled about like a sparrow, and she had to, 
for she kept house for her husband and his two widowed brothers. They're always up to something, she said, and when they're not, they're messing up my kitchen with brew and bottles. Alice had everyone's interest at heart, and why not? She was related to most everyone within a hundred miles around. She told me her grandfather had settled on exploits years ago. He, he was a kind of doctor from the old country. He came out to St. John's, but he didn't like the crowds of people, so he mooched along the coast till he found this place, the first person to bide here. She showed me his great shoe buckles, silver hammered over prongs of iron to hold the buckles' weight on the ribbons of his shoes. I bet he was a dandy in his young days, she said. Yes, said her husband, Jonathan, and he was some tough. He was alive when I was courting Alice here. Some bonny maid she was, too. The old man wouldn't let me marry her cause I had ne'er boat of me own to go fishing in. So I had to play cribbage for a whole week straight before I won a skiff off a feller down to shore. Obviously, neither Alice nor Jonathan regretted the trouble, for they made you believe all the love stories that were ever written. And Alice, having outlived her two sisters-in-law, now looked after three of the most fascinating old men I've ever had the luck to meet. I don't know how many times I nearly lost the lot of them. Alice told me. I minds the time when Aaron and Luke went out lobstering just off the cove and the wind came up and they were gone so long we just about gave them up for lost. We decided to launch the motorboat and go after them. It was some windy. You could hardly stand up and what with the gale right in on the land and the breakers up over the cliff. Just as soon as we got the boat off I seen something black bobbing up and down way outside. I near died of fright. You know what it was? "'Twas Iron and Luke hanging on to the bottom of the dory, "'and it upside down, and they riding in on the breakers, "'just like they was in a sailboat.' "'Here Aaron took up the story. "'Well, we were log-loaded with lobsters and gear. "'Twas our last trip for the season, "'and all of a sudden a big wave washed in over us, "'and we went under. "'Everything tipped out and sank except the dory, "'and she rode bottom up. "'Neither one of us could swim.' So I yelled to Luke to hold on while I got off me Guernsey and hove it over the bottom of the boat. And then he tied the sleeve to his arm, and I tied the other sleeve to my arm, and we hung on, comfortable-like, till the wind drove us toward the shore. Good thing the Guernsey was from me own sheep's wool, or it would have tore apart. Well, the wind was more than five hours about its job driving them ashore, but Aaron and Luke survived with nothing worse than sniffles. The worst off was Alice, Aaron said. She was in bed three days with the fright. The brothers had a reputation on the coast for what they euphemistically called cordial, although they well knew the wallop it packed. Don't give him any more, Alice would beg her men when they plied a visit over generously. He won't have the sense to get home if you do. Of course, if he was staying the night, I wouldn't care. Then all I'd have to do would be to pack him up and heave him on the bed, and I'd know he'd be safe for the night. And that would set the three big men and their visitor doubling over with laughter. Why, tiny little Alice, she couldn't heave anything bigger than a tomcod. They were quiet for a space, savoring the calm of the evening. We drank our bitter brew of tea, the men smoked peacefully, and I made quick notes for the story I would later write of this day. But now, in case I precipitate a rush for exploits in the simple life, I hasten to tell you there are many abandoned villages around Newfoundland. Why don't you go and rescue one? That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. 
This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of Ella Manuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next episode for the visitor's view of Newfoundland in 1905.